You're listening to the podcast, So You Want to Be a Writer, with Valerie Koo and Allison Tate. Valerie is an author, journalist, and national director of the Australian Writers' Centre, which is one of the world's leading providers of online and classroom courses for people who want to get published and write with confidence. Alison Tate is a freelance writer, blogger, and author of the best-selling series, The Mapmaker Chronicles. She has more than 20 years' professional writing experience. Each week, they explore the world of writing, publishing, and blogging to bring you news and opportunities, advice on how to succeed in the world of writing, interviews with top writers, and much more. With students enrolling from all over the world, you can find out more about the Australian Writers' Centre at writerscentre.com.au. everyone and welcome to episode 59 of So You Want to Be a Writer. My name's Valerie Koo and I'm here with Alison Tate. How are you, Alison? I'm very well, thank you, Valerie. I've had my walk with Procrasty Pup. Oh, I've yes. had a large coffee and I'm ready to go. Excellent. Have you had a very writerly week? Oh, God, I'm having one of those weeks. I'll, I'll tell you what I'm doing, Valerie. I'm redrafting. Oh, yeah. Oh, not only am I redrafting, I'm rewriting. I've got this poor book pulled into 86 different pieces <laughs> and I'm now attempting to put the thing back together again. And I'm at that point in the edit where I just wish I'd never written the book in the first place. Oh, but oh it's just awful. You it don't hurts. mean that. Oh, no, I really do. It's just, it's one of those things where you're kind of going through it and it just every single thing I do makes my head hurt even more. And yeah, it's kind of, it's editing is really hard work and I, I think if it's not feeling like it's really hard work then you're not trying hard enough <laughs> that's my experience anyway because I always think I, I did I've already done I've redrafted this thing a couple of times and the first couple of times I just went through it and I think I just you know cut, moved a couple of sentences and you know whatever and thought yeah that's great <laughs> and um this time I'm actually doing it properly and so it, the agony of it is, is unbearable. But and anyway, of, and of how's course, your week? Well, of course, this is book three of uh, The Mapmaker No, no, this is not. No, book what three, is it? No, book three of The Mapmaker Chronicles is all done and dusted and um, I think I get it back for proofreading, you know, any minute now. So it's actually at the point of feeling like it's almost, you know, there, oh, ready to go. It just needs a little bit of makeup on at this point. Um, no, this is this is my um, my adult novel that I've been working on for a few years. It's, wow. it's called working title, The Marriage Diaries. And it's um, it's just, yeah, painful. And, the, you know, the worst <laughs> thing about it is you, you do all this work on it and, and you send it off and, you know, it's pro. You know, there's no guarantees. You know, you spend a, f- a few years of your life. Like I mean, it, when I say a few years, like I've obviously written three other books in the meantime and done a whole lot of other things, but it's kind of been one of those projects that's been in the drawer and out of the drawer and back in the drawer. And yeah, I know what you mean. Oh, so I'm going to do all this stuff, and then they're probably going to say, "Look, you know, it's not for us." <laughs> <laughs> At which point, I'll start something else. <laughs> I'm sure they won't. But anyway, I have not been redrafting this week. I have been. Uh, going to quite a number of writing related events actually yes I was um it was lovely to you know have some bubbles and canapes at uh, Pamela Hart's book launch we interviewed Pamela last week for her book The Soldier's Wife which is a wonderful book and um I went to her book launch at the offices of Hachette which was lovely 
And then um, I hosted a really interesting panel on how technology is disrupting journalism mm-hmm. at uh, in Sydney, and um, it was really good just to get what a lot of different. What did I find out? Wow, that there are some people who are really scared about the fact that technology is disrupting journalism, and there are some people who are really excited about the opportunities, and there are some people who are not only a bit of both, but just feeling a bit overwhelmed that they think they need to learn a whole new set of skills. Mm. And uh, and it's interesting because I you do need to learn some skills, but it's not like you need to do a whole three-year degree or anything like that to, to acquire the new skills. You just need to you know, look on the internet and Google it. It's it's actually not rocket science. Um, and it's really a willingness to experiment with different with different platforms really that that'll yeah. that'll get you there. It's also that I, I guess the other thing is it's it's a time factor in the sense that you as you say, the information's all available. Yeah. Um, you need to set aside the time to actually investigate and find out what you need to know. Talk to the other thing I I'm always astounded by is you know, the, one of the great things about being a journalist is that you're generally not backwards and coming forwards with a question. Mm-hmm. So I'm always a big fan of, like, if I want to find something out, I usually find someone to ask. It's the quickest way to yes. get to the crux of the matter, I find. Just yeah. putting that out there. <laughs> and so, also it was interesting to talk to uh, Steph Harmon, who is uh, – oh, and sorry, Jenny Ryle, who is the editor of the Australian edition of Mashable, and she was talking about how she uh, has targets, you know, as in traffic targets. So mm-hmm. she will do a combination of stories, you know, the stories that really do need to be written, the journalistic stories that, are, that, that need to get out there that are important, that she knows, even when she's writing them, may not be the sexiest topics you know, that people are going to click on and therefore might not give her the traffic, but she writes them anyway because they're important to get out there. But in order to get her traffic, she'll schedule in time in her day to, you know, broadcast that cat video. (laughs) Mm, I was going to say, when I think of Mashable, I think of, you know, fantastic, you know, 20 awesome opening lines or, you know, great scenes from Hogwarts, that kind of stuff. Yeah. So it's interesting that she, that they've got to have that balance. And that's one of the things that some of the digital only publications who were represented at the event spoke about is that you increasingly, you need to think about that balance. Anyway, let's move into some of the links that we have this week in the world of writing and blogging and publishing. I've got a great one. <laughs> this one just made me giggle. All right, what have you got for us? <laughs> There's this poor couple. Anyway, this is it's in uh, Gorka, and the headline is "Couple sues after their engagement photo ends up on erotic Gronk novel." <laughs> so that, that sounds painful. Oh yeah. <laughs> so yeah. this poor couple are suing quite a number of people, including, uh, you know, Apple, Amazon and Barnes and Noble who are selling the book on online because a photograph of them from their engagement has been used without permission. And oh. it's been used in a, uh, on, on the cover of an erotic novel series mm. called Gronking to Remember. <laughs> mm. And um, they're not very happy about it because not only have they on, you know, an erotic novel that they've got nothing to do with, it's also been the source of humour on The Tonight Show, on Jimmy Kimmel Live. Oh, so why, yeah, and it's because, so it's an erotic novel series which features 
the tight end, which is a, a football position, in case you didn't know, uh, from um, the Patriots by the name of Shrek Rob Gronk Gronkowski. So that's where the Gronk comes from. Yes. And so hence that's why it's had so much publicity. And there's this poor couple having a nice engagement moment on the cover. I know. And they've, they're going to be embarrassed by lines like, Suddenly, all I wanted to do was watch Gronk do his thang-thang in the zone place there. <laughs> oh, you are kidding me. Oh, how is that even a thing? Oh, oh no. Anyway, okay. poor couple. So poor I guess couple. That, but I guess that's the thing. What we need to look at here is how did this happen? Like where did the, where did the image come from? How did they end up there? It's obviously a copyrighted photograph yeah. somewhere else. Um, used without permission. And we've had experiences with this before. We have seen this where people's baby photos have ended up in some strange places and things. I, I, I guess the message comes down to, like, how safe are your photos? When well, you put them up on Facebook and when you're spreading them around, how safe are they? Where, or, and where can they be used? Well, I was in Thailand once and I was in my hotel room and I was just flicking through the magazine that was, you know, on the table. And I would just like to add I was in a respectable hotel. Okay. <laughs> However, as I flicked through this magazine, I came upon this uh, photo of Kate Fisher. Remember Kate Fisher? I do remember Kate Fisher. And, you know, she was a model in her day and it was uh, she was advertising a, a brothel, but it wasn't her. What? You know, it was being used without her permission. Oh, they just pulled off a photo. They just pulled off a photo. Ad. Yeah, it was did definitely. You tell her? Yeah, I did. Oh, <laughs> well, I told her people anyway. Yeah, bring her people. <laughs> you know, those were back in the days when we knew her people. Yeah, <laughs> but um, yeah, it's it, it is it's it's bizarre. But what's even going to be more interesting is what kind of if they win the case, what kind of damages do you actually get? You know, if you if you're involved in in an erotic novel like this, so. Who knows? <laughs> we'll have to follow that up. Keep an eye on the Gronk story, okay? I will. Okay. So there's another post I have, and this is about an author called Danny Scheinman. Oh. Now, Danny had a book called, and this is from Isabel Costello's blog called On the Literary Sofa. So thank you to Isabel for uh, doing this interview with Danny because Danny once wrote this book called Random Acts of Heroic Love. And he it's, it's an interesting backstory actually because back in 1992, he sadly lost his girlfriend in a bus crash in Ecuador. Oh. And he said that <clears throat> as he watched the coffin being lowered into the ground, he vowed he would build a mon monument <clears throat> to honour her memory. And, you know, he wasn't going to build the Taj Mahal or anything so he decided to write a book mm -hmm. and eventually many years later and 10 rewrites later he mm -hmm. wrote the book and it was really a labor of love and it was reject rejected by everyone <laughs> mm -hmm. but eventually it did get picked up his agent shopped it around and it did get picked up by um, Transworld Random House mm -hmm. at the time and it then, you know, had many offers in, 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 in addition to that and it had sold in five countries and it sold, uh, I think, 250,000 books, so, you know, huge success basically. Wow. Huge success. So um, t two years later, he presented his publishers with a synopsis of his second book because, mm. you know, his first book had got to – at number one on Amazon, it, it sold uh, 250,000 copies just in the UK, mm. let alone the rest of the world. Shortlisted for awards. Go you know, Danny. Yeah, go Danny. But basically his publishers said, 
Um, no, this is oh. not, this is not Danny Scheinman's second novel. <laughs> they didn't want it. So he's taken his matters into his own hands and his book, which is called The Half-Life of Joshua Jones, he's decided to crowdfund it through Unbound. Wow. Yeah, so like big, big move there. Yeah, so he's had massive sales of his first book through a publisher and mm. he's crowdfunding his second. Yes, so exactly. he can So that he can publish the book that he wants to publish as opposed to publishing the book that his publisher thinks he should publish. That's right. And I will add, I, 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 missed, I missed a bit. His second book, which he wrote, which the publisher rejected, he kind of just put that in a drawer for a bit and he started writing again, you know, right. a, a, another okay. book. And that is the book that he is, uh, that he's crowdfunding. So, you so know, the half-life of Joshua Jones remains in a, in a drawer. No, no, that's the one that is the, the third oh, this book is in the one. Yeah, the gone. one. Okay, I see. Sorry. Yes. I, sorry, I got confused there. Well, that's interesting. So what do you think of the whole crowdfunding of, you know, f- to publish? Well, I think he, you know, basically explains it and he says, he says in this blog, in the meantime, the publishing landscape has continued to change dramatically. Mm. Bookshops are closing, digital sales are on the rise, Amazon has a stranglehold on the market and the biggest high street retailers of books are now supermarkets. <laughs> and he says, what does this mean for writers? Well, as an ex-Tesco manager told a friend of mine, authors are now competing with bananas for shelf space. <laughs> yeah, well, which is which is true. It's a product. They're t- treating it like a product, like anything else. I'm looking at his um, Unbound page, which is the mm. page for his crowdfunding. So he's 50% funded. Yes. He needs 371 more pledges. And, of course, as with all crowdfunding, there's everything from the the £10 um, contribution, which gets you the e-book of the new book, yeah. all the way down to the £1,200, which gets you the keynote for a business conference as well as you know various copies of the book and other things so um there's a whole range of different ways to to sign on which is interesting like you've got to work pretty hard don't you like if you, oh, know, how yeah. many, you know two tickets to the launch party plus a first edition hardback plus an ebook plus you know i'm you know my name your name in the back of the book mm. for 150 quid and That's you get true. access to the shed <laughs> yeah. <that> is. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I might sign up for access to the shed. That sounds good. <laughs> right. I'm not sure what happens in the shed, but anyway. anyway. But I you th- have to be creative and inventive, don't you? Like you if have you're going to. to do something like that. And if you try to do this without some kind of social media platform and oh, you're just relying it. all of your friends to, to pledge or your friends are friends to pledge, then yeah, forget it. You really do need to um, you know, have an author platform. But you know, he if if he sold a quarter of a million books, hey, hopefully he was smart enough during that time to build his author platform Mm. moving on to i got a cute link this week uh, on buzzfeed and i know sometimes we don't like things on buzzfeed but sometimes they just make me laugh um and this is 14 classic novels rewritten with clickbait titles Because one of the things one of the things that we did speak about in the technology disrupting journalism panel was how important is clickbait and you know is it is it here to stay and no matter what no matter what we we uh, we always click on clickbait I mean I know I do I'm a Mm -hmm. sucker for it especially Mm -hmm. if it involves cats so. I'll leave you with that one. (laughs) 14 classic novels rewritten with clickbait titles. So can you recognise this one, Al? Yes. You won't believe the 20 ways one party-loving millionaire tried to win his ex back. The Great Gatsby. (laughs) Yes. 
meet the pig in charge of this whole farm. Animal farm. Yes. Right. How freeing an escaped convict turned this little boy into a millionaire. I'm looking at the cover of that, you know, and I'm thinking I know that, but I, my mind's gone completely blank. Mm. Expectations, great expectations. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I just, you know, you just have that, yeah, I mean, that's, yeah. I'd, I'd like to, would have liked the job of actually writing these. It's quite fun. I know, quite fun. You won't believe the lengths this hobbit went to when trying to return a piece of jewellery. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think The Hobbit is a bit of a giveaway with that one, don't you think? And this, I'll, I'll leave you with this. Answers to life, the universe and everything. You'll never believe number 42. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. My old Mr. Eleven is reading um, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy at the moment. Oh, yes. Is he enjoying it? Um, not as much as I am. <laughs> oh, right. Okay. <laughs> I think he's a little bit young for it, really. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Anyway. Anyway, so that's our, there are our links for this week. I do have one more link, actually. I'll just – I'll quickly run this past you. Okay. Um, this is 10 – now, this can get – you know, we can take heart at some of these. You know, you know, sometimes, like, it's really difficult to read reviews yes. of your own work. It yeah. can be really painful and it can be really great. But we can take heart because this lists 10 savage original reviews of classic works of literature. And in fact, speaking of The Great Gatsby, one, uh, the New York Herald Tribune, when The Great, Great Gatsby first came out, said, The Great Gatsby is pure ephemeral phenomenon, a literary lemon meringue. <laughs> And it didn't do that well. So F. Scott, F. Scott Fitzgerald only got $2,000 advance to write the book and only made, according to this, $13 in royalties wow. during his lifetime because it wasn't until much later after his death when the book was rediscovered and, you know, became this amazing thing in American literature. So Isn't that the, interesting? Yeah, people, you know, can be mean. I'm reading this one about Wuthering Heights. Oh, yes. How a human being could have attempted such a book as the present without committing suicide before he had finished a dozen chapters is a mystery. It is a compound of vulgar depravity and unnatural horrors. Good Lord. That appeared in Graham's Lady Magazine Good in Lord. 1848. People Can you mean. believe that? People oh. mean. Can you imagine being – that's like the worst one-star review on Goodreads ever. I know. <laughs> How do people – do people are mean? Anyway, let's not talk about more mean, more mean people. Let's oh, move okay. on to All right, let's. our writing craft book for this week. I bought what a new got? book. Got, you know, one of my books. Yeah. This one is called How to Write Short, Wordcraft for Fast Times, mm. and it's by Roy Peter Clark. Oh. And – Basically, it's all about. He says that, um, uh, you, you know, he, you know, how you say a picture is worth a thousand words. Well, he thinks that a thousand pictures can be painted with just a few words, mm. and he's obsessed with short writing, which is really increasingly common these days because mm. of, you know, we need to write effective headlines and clickbait and mm. powerful titles and tweets, tweets, absolutely <laughs> tweets. So he's he's. Start, I just love the way he starts off. Remember the movie kid who see sorry, remember the movie kid who said I see dead people? Yeah. Well, I see short writing. 
I I collected all in my day book, haikus and sonnets, aphorisms and parables, prayers and insults, bumper sticker slogans and T-shirt rhymes and so on and so on and so on. So he's obsessed with short writing. And I think that in this day and age, a book like this, even though it's just kind of funny, is actually really useful because people's attention spans these days are ridiculously short and it's so important to be able to grab them, you know, not just – and, you know, I'm not just referring to copywriters who write ads who who really do need to encapsulate things in a very short space. All of us now these days need to be able to write in a really succinct way and capture people's imagination. So Mm. I'm keen to see what this book has to say. I only bought it on the weekend. All right. Well, I look forward to hearing your update on that at some other stage. Yes. I would like it in approximately – 25 words or less. No problem. I'll do it. Excellent. I'll do it. What (laughs) have you got for us? Well, I came across a great link on um, a website called dashes.com by a blogger called Anil Dash. And it's a post called 15 Lessons from 15 Years of Blogging. Wow. So Anil, last summer, because this was actually a September 2014 post, um, marked 15 years since Anil started blogging and like that to me like 15 years in blogging terms is like I don't know it's like dog years I reckon every year in blogging is worth about seven so I think that um there are some interesting things and the the thing that I found interesting about this is that a lot of the stuff that Anil's talking about is not isn't it's not exactly you know earth shattering in the sense that you know um they say typos in posts don't reveal themselves until you've published which is so true like I can't tell you the number of times I've pushed publish on a blog post and then gone, oh, there's a yeah. I've missed a comma or I've missed or whatever. Yeah. And it happens to everyone. Yeah. Um, they t- um, talking about things like, you know, um, write with the idea that what you're sharing will live for months and years and decades. Mm. And that's really important because I think that people think, oh, I'm going to publish a blog post and it'll be there and I'll sort of do a bit of social media on it. It'll be there for today and tomorrow and then people will move on. And they do, but it sits there on your website forevermore. So stuff that you wrote 15 years ago is still sitting there coming up in searches, doing different things. And you might have actually changed your mind a lot about a lot of different things in that 15 year period but your early thoughts remain they're still there so always before you publish anything and that that goes from a tweet to a blog post to anything just remember that it's going to be sitting there for a really really long time um absolutely and And on that point on that point i thought i would add be aware that anyone can read it including future employers Mm. because i am coming across an increasing number of people who are applying for jobs and including their you know their blog uh, their blog URL because you know they want to see they want us to see the quality of the writing and it's it's sort of interesting and sort of disturbing because you go back and you read some of their posts and you know they slag off their previous employer and that doesn't really paint them in a great light if they're applying Seriously? for a job mm. oh anyway That's just, yeah you got to remember oh yeah so I, I don't I don't do. I don't put things like that on the internet. Like you think it, talk Other to your pe- friends about it, do mm. whatever, but don't write it down on the internet. Other people do. Oh, it's interesting. Um, the one I found really interesting, and this is something that I I've also experienced in my five years of blogging. I know I'm an amateur compared to Anil. Um, there is absolutely no pattern to which blog posts people will like. Mm. I have to agree with that. Mm. You sort of put things out. You might work really hard on something, and you put it out there thinking this is going to go great. And nothing happens. Mm. And then something that you've written, like a paragraph <laughs> that you've dashed off the top of your head at 10.30 yep. on a Wednesday night, 
goes ballistic. It's really, it's a really interesting thing um, to as to see what engages people and what what doesn't. But anyway, if you're a blogger, it's a really interesting post to have a look at. And and um, the thing I really like is the ending, which is point fourteen: leave them wanting more. And yes, it is fifteen lessons. So Anil has left us wanting yeah. more. <laughs> Oh, my goodness. I know. Sorry, I had to go there. All right, so what have you got for us anyway? What's next? Who's our writer-in-residence, Valerie? Our writer-in-residence is Matt Nabel. Now, Matt has written – it's his third novel, and it's Mm. called Guilt. And um, people might be familiar with Matt Nabel because he actually graces our television screens on a regular basis and also the movies. He has – I think I've mentioned him before. He has been in Underbelly Badness. He was recently in Gallipoli, the series, the television series. He was recently in Winter, the playing opposite Rebecca Gibney in um, the, the police series. Um, he starred with Vin Diesel in Riddick. Mm-hmm. He starred with Jason Statham in The Killer Elite. Mm-hmm. But he started life off, uh, you know, living in Sydney and he always knew he wanted to be a writer but then he kind of went through a variety of jobs including personal trainer and played a few games uh, you know he rugby league player he yeah he was in the NRL he played a few yeah. games for Manly and also mm-hmm. for Souths mm-hmm. but his love from a very young age has always been writing so the first thing he wrote that kind of like got up was that was a screenplay but he's since written three novels and I've read the novel Guilt, so I read it before I um, before I interviewed him, and it is beautiful. And one of the things I did say to him is, I think this this is going to be a real popular book club novel because mm-hmm. your people are not only going to see you know so many people in their book club <laughs> in the book they're going to know so many people who are like the characters in this book and they're probably might even recognize themselves like the characters in this book because Matt has this incredible knack for just noticing these little little things which he is then able to turn into beautiful words which you resonate with because you recognize immediately as as you know in people that you know so i won't say too much about glowing review valerie it was a very good book i couldn't put Mm. it down yeah Mm. so let's have a listen to matt nabel Matt Nabel is an Australian actor and writer. His third novel is Guilt, a novel about friendship, jealousy and trust. Many people will already be familiar with Matt's work as an actor through Australian dramas like Gallipoli, Bikey Wars and Underbelly Badness. He has also starred in movies like Killer Elite with Jason Statham and Riddick with Vin Diesel. He also has a major part in season three of the cult hit Arrow. But Matt says that his passion, what he feels most happiest doing, is writing novels. His previous novels are We Don't Live Here Anymore and Faces in the Clouds. So, Matt, thanks for joining us today. It's a pleasure. Matt, for listeners who aren't yet familiar with your latest novel, Guilt, can you tell us what it's about? Oh, look, it's about a a group of uh, five teenagers um, in their last year of high school, uh, set in 1989. Um, And so what we do in the novel is we go from one chapter is set in 1989 on on a specific day, one day, and then every other chapter is 2009, 20 years later, uh, and dealing with the same characters. Uh, and how it unfolds is 
um, basically something happens on that night in 1989 and uh, these characters are dealing with the incident and, and how it's affected their lives. So um, we sort of swap, uh, like I said, every other chapter between 1989 and then 20 years uh, on from that. So where did this idea for this particular book come from? I was really fascinated um, or really wanted to write about the last um, couple of years of, of school, uh, that that period as a young adolescent where you're about to make your first imprint by yourself and, um, and there was a real, for me at least, there was a real uh, very, very strong sense of, of freedom and being free. Uh, and it was also the first time in my life that I'd felt anything sort of euphoric. Um, and so those memories uh, are still very, very vivid for me. And it's a time in my life that, um, you know, not only did I enjoy, but the, 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 the bonds of friendship were so strong and formed so strong over those couple of years that, you know, when you're living in the moment, you, you think it's going to be like that forever and that, that these friendships will endure and they'll always be the same and and uh and obviously that's not the case just through you know either you know location or where you end up living or how your life pans out um but it was still a very it was still a very nice comforting um feeling to be you know while it was going on and while it was happening so i wanted to write about that and um i also wanted to write about there was an incident that happened while i was in year 12 and i'd often thought about what uh, perhaps had come of those people that were involved because it was such a, a life-changing type of event. And I often wondered about how their life might have turned out compared to, you know, where they thought it was heading in that time of their life, like I said, when it was all before them and it was all so bright and, um, you know, with this sort of limitless type of um, possibility. So uh, that, that's, that was the genesis of it. And... And I, and I guess it just sort of moved along from there over the years. So the incident that occurred in real life, did out of interest, did you ever find out? You know, did you ever go and investigate yourself nah. what happened to your friends? So this is your version of, not, not your version, but what your imagination has come up with kind of thing. Well, yeah, I mean, when, when you're dealing with tragedy, mm. uh, you know, that, then there are the very specific types of, uh, behavioural aspects that that you will, that that everyone will sort of go through, move through. Um, so knowing that, but also just the the, the whole sense of um, a lost life, a, a, a disappointment that it didn't end up the way you perhaps wanted it. And I think that's for a lot of people that's that, that happens. You know, like people become content with their lives and they, and they can still be very very happy, but it doesn't often pan out the way that you see it back then when you're 17 or 18. It really, really happens that way. So, And for these unfortunate people, something that happens at that, that age um, and, and goes so horribly wrong, then you know, their, their lives and their, their track is, is altered much more than it would be in a normal case. So uh, for me, it was exploring it, um, but also knowing people who have been through trauma and how it's affected them and, and observed how it's affected them and how it's molded their lives and changed their lives. So I think there's a lot of observance that goes on. I don't know whether it's conscious or not, but you certainly, you know, there is there are incidents that happen every day, um, you know, that change people's lives and, and often those incidents, um, you know, are, are tragic and, 
And so, but inevitably for me, it was just, uh, you know, supposing of what, what it might have ended up like. So you say that it's a little bit of an exploration into did your life end up where you expected it to be? So I suppose that's my question to you. Did your mm. life, has your life ended up where you thought you would be 20 years after your year 12? Or uh, a bit more than 20 years? No, I, I, I don't, no, it's certainly not where where I thought it would be. I where mean, did you think you would be in year 12? Uh, look, all I wanted to do was, was be, be a writer. Um, and, and so that was something that, uh, you know, when I was going through year 12, the only available way to become a writer really back then was, was to do a degree in journalism and, and, and then, you know, begin writing, I guess, at a newspaper or something uh, and then cross over into fiction or writing a novel. I, I really didn't know, but that's what I wanted to do. But in saying that, I, I didn't uh, expect to be, you know, I, I certainly didn't want to be an actor. Um, I, I had no no inkling whatsoever or passion to, to, to do that and, and now that's how I make a living. So, you know, in saying that as well, um, it, it certainly didn't pan out the way I thought it would pan out but I'm, I'm still remarkably lucky because, you know, my family are all still, you know, alive, my immediate family, my brothers and my sister and, and my parents and, and so I've had to, I haven't had to deal with a whole heap of a tragedy in that way um, but certainly it's at different stages, but 20 years, it's, it's been rough. I think at different stages for, for all adult human beings, you know, moving through your thirties and into your forties can be a really tumultuous time. So, um, you get to where you are and, and, you know, I'm very happy and very lucky to be where I am, but it's not without its scars and it's certainly not without its moments where you do realize how tough life can be. So... Um, yeah. So I want to come back to your career in a sec, but I just want to come back to the book. Mm. The book has n- a number of characters in it, and you've mentioned we meet them in 1989 and also 20 years later in 2009. Now, all of these characters are interrelated, but I, I will say that the-, the story is never confusing. The way the story unfolds, despite having all these characters in different time frames, yeah. is very clear and very compelling. Uh, how did you keep track, though, of all these characters and the different points in their life? You know, in terms of the process of writing and creating these characters, did you have dossiers for all of these characters and, you know, timelines or anything like that? How did that work for you? No, uh, I think it's very different. Um, when, you're, when you're writing it yourself, you know, it does – look, when I look back at it and I think, well, there are, there are quite a few characters, there's five, you know, central characters in 1989, plus you've got their parents and – and, you know, you have in the 2009 thread more characters come into it. Um, you, when you're writing it, it's, for me at least anyway, I never got confused simply because you're in it. And you know those those characters so well by the time you're in the meat of the story that um, I, I didn't find myself losing my way. I, you know, the, and you redraft and you change things, but the central characteristics of all those characters never wavered from 1989 to 2009. They're still obviously very affected by what's happened, but the core characteristics sort of maintain and, and stay the same. And I honestly believe, I think at a certain age in your adolescence, you, you are what you are. Um, and so I was able to, I think, just maintain that and stay true to it so that I wasn't meandering off or, or 
writing things that weren't ringing true uh, about the about the people. But um, I think it's just over over because it's, this this was written over a period of six years. Um, you keep going back and and uh, and the more hours that you spend with these people and you write about these people, then as a writer you get a very clear discernible line and outline of what they are, and it's easy to sort of go in and go out and 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 approach it that way. But um, you know, it was a concern, though, in saying that when you go to edit with a publisher, knowing that there are so many characters that you're making it, and and that it's not blurred or or uh, confusing. Were you clear from the outset, from the start of your six years, what was going to happen with the story, or did some of that unfold as you went through through the process? A lot of it um, unfolds, um, particularly the character development and, and where they are, and uh, I guess to the point how they you hear them, you know, vernacular-wise and, and their behavioural aspects. They change and they, and they, you know, take on a life themselves once you're into it. But the way it was going to end, I always knew um, that that was always very, very clear. And that's, for me at least, that's always uh, the novels that I have written uh, the, and the previous two as well. I've always known where I was going to start and where I was going to finish. And, and in between that is... Um, is is trying to make it compelling, I guess, and make it so, um, which is a challenge. But but that's I've always known where I was going to start and finish. Reading the book was like a little bit like <clears throat> watching a movie unfold. Or I don't know if you've seen the television series The Affair, which is told from different points of view. But yeah. you, you have a background as a screen, screenwriter, and you've written yeah. the screenplay. Was that in the back of your mind when you wrote this book that one day it could lend itself? To being adapted into a movie or on the screen somehow? No, not not, not at all. I mean, I, I think when you're writing, a, you know, a narrative that that's got different aspects and different points of view, then that will always lend itself to something that perhaps is either cinematic or good for television. Um, and so, you know, I can certainly recognise in this story, as opposed to the other two books that I've written, that that you know there's a possibility that something like this could be, um, you know, something that might be interesting as an ad- adaptation to, to those things. But it's never, you know, something that, that, that crosses my mind. It's, um, I like, you know, I, I guess multi-layered uh, character-driven sort of narratives, both as a reader and, and as a, an audience member to watch something. So I guess you're sort of influenced by part of on what, interest you yourself type of thing so but yeah I, I can certainly see where this story lends itself to something that that um you know could be put on uh as a different medium definitely so we'll, we'll see what that happens yeah. <laughs> in your writing there are so many just little nuances about human behavior and just these little observations ranging from you know the way someone's lips are when they laugh or something that they do with their hands that are just so tiny, but they speak volumes about the character or about what's going on. Is that something that you consciously try to add in or is that something that just comes to you naturally because you're a very, you must be a very observing, you know, full of observation in terms of watching the way people, people behave. Yeah, I've always, uh, you know, um, yeah, I've always been a very, very good uh, watcher, I guess, you know, and my observations tend to stay with me very, very 
clearly and vividly now. Um, and a lot of them are little things. I mean, I might see the way someone's, the shape of someone's mouth as they, as they're resting or, you know, where they, like you said, how they move their hands or, um, the little ticks that they might have or, so those things for me just help build a character and they're the things that I've watched and observed over a long period of time that I've found fascinating or I've looked behind or tried to scratch beneath the surface and why that might be the case or why, you know, um, why they behave that way or, you know, particularly if there's a behavioural aspect to someone that keeps repeating itself and I see a correlation to the situation when it tends to repeat itself and I, I wonder what that's about or, you know, where that might be stemming from. Is it pride or is it shame? Is it embarrassment? And often that will lend itself then to something physical that they do as well. So they're the little things that, that, that I can that will turn me on and switch me on. And, and I think as a writer, when you write things like that, for a lot of people, though it's not on a conscious level, they'll, they'll hear something, they'll read something and they go, oh, I know someone who does that. Yes. Or, um, I've seen that before. And that, that might be the first time that they've actually, uh, you know, they've, they've actually ticked on to the fact that, oh, actually, I've seen this before. I know what he's talking about. So I think that's one of the great joys of reading when you when you read something and you're exposed to something that that's been sitting there for quite a long time and you go ah oh, yes I know that or yep. um, it's I, I think I, sorry what were you going to say no no I I, I do that often because it happens to me quite often so I tend to sort of work those those moments in when I can when it feels right and true yeah Mm-mm. I think this also this can be very popular with book clubs because book members of books book clubs are going to see themselves in this book yes. or they're going to know people who yes. are characters in this book. Anyway, this is your third novel. The yes. others are We Don't Live Here Anymore and um, Faces in the Clouds. When yes. you're writing, you're actually thinking I'm writing a novel now as opposed to acting or doing something mm. else. Tell us about your writing process. Is it I'm setting aside three months and that's all I'm doing or do you have to fit it in with your other gigs or – you know, is there a certain way you have to sit at a particular computer or something for it yeah. to work? Uh, what I do is, I mean, when I'm writing a, a novel, in you know, then what I'll try and do, um, or what works best for me, is that I'm not on anything else. So I'm not acting. Uh, I don't have another project, uh, you know, in some form writing. Um, and then so I might get a chunk of a month uh, or a month and a half where I can really commit to it, and then. I will be disciplined in the sense that I'll try and write between 1,500 and 2,000 words a day of new material every day uh, in that period that I get because I don't get that much time in between what I'm doing. So when I find the time and, and you know, for me at the moment to, to find – I've started another novel and I won't get to that until, you know, towards the end of the year where I'll, get, I'll give myself a space of maybe six weeks. And in that six weeks I'll, I'll get a, a fair chunk of it out. And then, you know, midway through the year, I might get back to it. And then midway through the year after that, I might get back to it. So it's just a matter of finding the time for me that I can set aside and do that and nothing else. Um, and they're moments that I really look forward to in my life because they're, 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 they're painless. I mean, I... Painless? Yeah. Well, to sit down every day and write and, and to... You know, I mean, they certainly leave their scars, but it's painless in the sense that I'm I'm not concentrating on more than one thing. So, you know, I'm not remembering lines. I'm not 
trying to figure out a character specifically. So, you know, once I'm on camera and, and that character's been established, then you really can't move too far from that. So there's always that that I've got to deal with. But with this, particularly your first draft of a novel, then you're set free. You can you can go and do whatever you want to do. So that those periods for me are are remarkably appealing and, and I feel very, um, uh, you know, it, it's a very happy period of my life when I, when I get to do that. So uh, the moments that I look forward to and because of that, then I, I certainly set that time aside and, and once that it's set aside, then um, I'm really strict and, and ad- adhere to it and, and, and can be quite selfish with the time. Mm. So you said that you always wanted to write in year 12, you know, so at school you wanted to write. And you actually became an NRL player in the 90s and you played some games for Manly and Souths. And if Wikipedia is reliable, then some years pass and next thing you know, you've written and starred in a screenplay in 2007, so the final winter. And then it's then cast in a Hollywood telly movie shortly thereafter. And not too many years later, you're in a movie with Jason Statham and one with Vin Diesel. It seems like such a leap. What mm-hmm. are some of the gaps that Wikipedia might be missing? How did you, you know, go from school thinking, I want to be a writer, and then, yeah. oh, let's play for Manly? <laughs> yeah. Look, I think that, um, you know, it, it is uh... – I think if you look back on anyone's life, there's, there's, you know, regardless of what they've done, um, uh, and if they've achieved some sort of level of, of perceived success at least, then there are those holes. For me, I was just a very physical kid. Um, you know, we grew up uh, in an army environment. My father was in the army, so I was on barracks till I was like 14 or 15, and so, and he was a what they call a physical training instructor. So. He was a very physical man and a very sharp outline of what we could really aspire to, and and so that's uh, what we were, and and so we played sport, we played rugby league, and we boxed, and uh, and I think at that age you, you you're looking for approval from from your father, and and that and that's what he was, you know. So we excelled at those things, um, but you know. Writing was at the same time was something you know I was a good student at school and 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 was you know I did well uh, but writing was creative writing was always something that I just loved and 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 you love the things usually and and love them more because you're good at them and because you get positive feedback from them and you're encouraged and I guess that's the law of nature so um, when I you know, I, I got to play a little bit of first grade at Manly and South, though, you know, that was never a career. It was just, you know, when I was playing, it was, you know, I was still working five or six days a week and you just play on the weekends type of thing. So it was a very different era and it was a long time ago. So, you know, I got out of that when I was, you know, very early 20s and and I did whatever I could in between that, you know, um, uh, to, to, to until I really you know, got to a point as, you know, I always figured I would go back to writing, but I remember, you know, being mid-20s thinking, okay, well, now will be the time to go, but I just didn't really have anything to say or I didn't really, yeah, I just felt like I was, it just, it was the, the, the absolute desire was there. There was just nothing there to write about. So I just lived, you know, I I, I just worked and, and did what I needed to do, um, honestly, to, to, to make a living and, and, you know, your 20s are a pretty good time, you know, like not a great deal happens except good stuff. 
you know, like good fun. And, and so I lived that, that type of a life until, uh, you know, when I hit towards my late 20s, I, I picked writing up again and, and it really became quite overwhelming. So, uh, and I'd grown a lot, you know, like oh, I was looking at the world very differently to what I had the years before. So um, the acting was, uh, was just something that happened. I'd written a manuscript many years before, you know, I think 1995 I'd, I'd written that manuscript and then, uh, you know, that was 20 years ago now. And then, you know, at the time of the final winter when I first wrote that it was a it was a loose adaptation of that manuscript, and you know my naivety and ignorance into the film industry was the reason that I ended up acting in it. Like I I, I just thought, well, you know, I, I didn't know any better, and, and I thought I will I'll just give this a shot myself. And um, and I was working with two other guys from a producing point of view that never done it before, and so you know the world was our oyster in the fact that we didn't surround ourselves or have anyone telling us that we couldn't do it. So we. We made it happen, and then um, the the acting, you know, it, it seems like a meteoric type of uh, rise, but it, in fact, it's you know, it hasn't been. There's you know, thousands upon thousands of auditions that 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 I that I've gone for that didn't get, and so you know, I certainly came out of the blocks very fast, but I think in between that and and then becoming comfortable with the actual craft of acting and, and actually even calling myself an actor, there's been some very lean times and 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 times that most actors go through. So um, but in between all that it was just, you know, doing what I had to do, you know, and, and just living. So you obviously have talent as a writer and talent as an actor, and in in part, as you say, some of it some of you pursuing you're pursuing that has been as a result of your naivety, but what have you done for yourself so that you so that you write better or so that you act better? What sorts of things have you done in terms of your own self development to improve your craft in those areas? Uh, I think. Look, I think this is my take on it. I think the arts, uh, for a lot of it, um, is very innate and intrinsic. You can either do it or you can't. And, and so that's, you know, and that's not to lessen what it is. I just wholly believe that that's the way it is. You can either write, you know, there are people who construct wonderful sentences and they're, you know, they've got degrees in creative writing and they've got, but they can't tell a story. Now, if you can't tell a story, you can write beautifully, but that's not going to serve you any good. So there are a lot of people that move into other areas of writing. If you can tell a story, you can tell a story. If you can act, you can act. If you can hear a musical instrument and play a musical instrument, that's very innate. If you can draw and paint, then that's innate. So there's a big part of it, I think, right from the start that's there. And to fall into that and actually be able to explore that is, is you know, that's that's the luck that, that serves you well. That's, you know, <laughs> you know for someone, they're hundreds of writers out there who never get an opportunity to explore what they might be good at or, or how good they might be or, or how good they would be as an actor or have never picked up an instrument that might have been wonderful. To find that with the resources that we have because we live in a very lucky world, um, then that, that's, you know, I've been very lucky that way. But that doesn't mean that you can't get exponentially better by, by approaching it um, certain ways, by understanding some of the uh, methods and systems that people use as an actor, you know. So I use 
you know, from what I've learned from other actors and from being on set and observing and talking to other actors, uh, you certainly get better and, and inform yourself um, as much as you can so that you're, you know, as far as an actor is concerned anyway, is to be present uh, in, in the moment. And, and really that's as much as, that's as much as you can hope for is making it real is, is to be present. And there's lots of different things in that situation that can pull you out of that. So learning the techniques and the methods um, to keep you there uh, are really, really important. And, and so I'm always asking questions. I'm always observing. I'm reading where I can. As far as writing is concerned, the best way to get better at writing is to keep writing. Uh, that's, you know, that, like I said, you know, to write a novel, it's, it's about telling a story. It's not, you know, I think, yeah, and I went through this as well where you, you know, you overuse words and it sounds, you know, extraordinarily descriptive and wonderful and you can get carried away. Particularly, you know, that's most writers' journey is, is going through that and you're influenced by the people that you read and you want to be seen a certain way. But inevitably, to get better at writing, you first of all, I think, is to find your own voice, something that you're comfortable with and that you're not striving um, consciously to 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 create. It's just there. And then continuing on that path and 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 writing as true to your voice as you can. Uh, and then, you know, getting better also is is by virtue of if, if you've got a good story to tell. So if it's a good story, then, you know, you tend to write you know, well, the writing itself is is often better. So, um, for me, you know, I, I read. I don't read as much as I should. I don't think, but that's also a catch twenty two or a double edged swords a little bit because I think that you can be influenced um, by writers at different stages. And um, although I, you know, I've written three novels and and I have my own voice and and it's quite unique. There are still similarities with other Australian writers and other, yeah, it's always going to be that way. So, um, you know, for me, to continue to write um, is the best way to get better. Mm. Um, if somebody said to you, Matt, right now you have to choose between writing and acting, would it be an easy decision? Would it be a clear decision? Well, it wouldn't be an easy decision because I make more money as an actor. Okay. Would it be a clear decision if you, if money wasn't the issue? Yes, it'd be a very easy decision. What would it be? It'd be writing, yeah, 100%. I mean, I, like I said, I mean, you know, writing is, you know, when I get to write particularly in this this form, is a real, it's where I feel the best about myself as a person because it gives me such a an identifiable or a very, very strong feeling of identity. Um, I know what I am um, and I don't, I'm not, this is what I feel very comfortable with. I know that. Um, this is coming from within me and this is who I am. Um, acting, you know, often you're pretending to be other people, you're pretending to be other people all the time and so that sometimes is, uh, you can get lost in the world a little bit sometimes and 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 that's not a place that I, I, I like to dwell that often. So um, sometimes the role calls for, you know, to, I, I guess for you to take on certain things and, and if you're going to do it to the best of your ability, which, you know, I, I think you should, then um, sometimes you can just get a little bit lost. I can find myself getting a little bit, a little bit lost and and, uh, um, and and I never feel that as a writer, you know, like and the older I get, um, you know, your perspective changes, your, 
your responsibilities change and, and you know, your what's important changes. So for me, um, to be at home with my wife and children and, and to live a real simple life is very appealing. So, you know, writing it, <laughs> writing it fit right into that. Mm-hmm. Uh, unfortunately, that's not the way it is at the moment. Though. Tell us what is, was the most challenging thing about writing this novel? Uh, there were quite a few challenging things about writing this novel. I, I put it away for a long time. Um, I put it away for about two years and didn't really revisit it again or tried to and I couldn't. Um, I just didn't, I guess I was at a point in my life where some things might have been happening and I wasn't comfortable going back to it. And uh, So to get over that and then to, I think, to um, come at it from a different perspective, um, uh, you know, that was difficult um, because it was such a long gestation, I guess, for this book from start to finish. Um, so that was challenging. I hadn't really experienced that before because the other two books that I'd written, um, I was in a situation where I guess I was able to write more prolifically and, and larger chunks of material um, closer together. And so, you know, I, I didn't have that those moments away from where I had to get back into it. And, you know, over six years, your perspective changes and your life changes and experiences change. And, and so because of the length of the period, you know, from start to finish, that was, yeah, that was definitely a challenge. Did you ever feel that you wouldn't be able to get back into it, that you might give up? Uh, no, I was never going to give up because um, <laughs> I'd sold it. <laughs> <laughs> Right. So I had to finish it. You couldn't. Uh, yeah, yeah, so I started fairly early back to Penguin and, and so it wasn't finished. And uh, But, I, yeah, no, I was always going to finish it. It was just a matter of – and wanted to finish it because I wanted to tell that story or elements of the story. So um, I was always going to finish it. But, yeah, it was a challenge at different stages and, and that's something I hadn't encountered before. What was the most rewarding thing about writing this book, apart from finishing it? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Look, I, I think being able to revisit that time of my life uh, and really, really revisit it and, and speak about it and, and remember what it was like to have these crushes and these jealousies and these, this wonderful uh, anticipation of what life was, how it was going to unfold and, and you know, where it was all going to head and you have these beautiful friendships, these wonderful friendships, you know, um, that that you just hang on to so tightly. Um, and so to talk about those things and um, and I hope, you know, that the people who do read this, that, that, you know, everyone has that adolescence, that time of their life. I hope that people will find a thread in there that they, they can, that can make them feel good because there were certainly parts of this book that while I was writing, I, I felt wonderful. This, I mean, this book was my adolescence. Uh, it, it, this was in the Northern Beaches, but I grew up in the 80s in the Shire. So there were so many parallels and I just knew all of these people. And this, the other interesting part is I, I know them now as well because it's 20 years later kind of thing. So it was, it was quite um, – it was amazing to, to read it. But if you'll indulge me and if listeners will indulge me with this one question because um, you are in – season three of Arrow, and I am Australia's biggest fan of Arrow. Hi. So (laughs) I have to ask, what's in store, even though it's got nothing to do with writing? Uh, Look, um, we just finished 
filming. I finished filming on Friday. So um, I left Vancouver on uh, Saturday morning. I finished Saturday morning and left Saturday afternoon. So I've been over there for three months. Uh, I've been on that job for six months. So it, look, it's, it's, yeah, it's a, it's a wild type of an end. There's, there's plenty of twists and turns coming and, um, look, it was great fun doing that show. It was, you know, it was such a removal from some of the stuff that I'd done. I'm usually raping people or killing people or, you know, <laughs> as a character. So this was, uh, completely fantastical and, and wonderful. So it was something that my kids could watch as well. So, but no, it's very interesting. The people who write this are very clever people and they know their audience very, very well. And the fan base are, you know, they're fanatical. So um, I'm, I can certainly say, you know, Valerie, that they won't disappoint. It'll be, uh, <laughs> it, it, it's, it's, it'll live up to all expectations, that's for sure. So when you're on a job like that for six months, can you fit in any kind of writing or are you thinking about or plotting out your next novel, which you've, you've already obviously got in your head? No, no, uh, not, I, won't, I won't write uh, a novel or, or attempt to write um, a novel in that space, but I'll certainly be working on, I just finished a pilot script for, uh, for John Edwards, who I did Gallipoli with, um, the producer. So, you know, th- I finished that. Um, I'm back writing a, a screenplay for uh, an Australian producer, um, which we're funded for, but uh, we need a rewrite, so I'm doing that now. Um, but in the middle of a job like that, there'll always be, I'll be, always be writing something, but it'll, it'll never inevitably be a, a novel. Do uh, you prefer writing screenplays or novels? Oh, look, I really prefer novels. I mean, screenplays are, are different. Screenplays are so governed by structure. Mm. Uh, and it's such a collaborative um, a collaborative effort. You know, like you really, after the first draft, you really want someone trusted to come in and pull, apart, pull it apart and, and, and inevitably it'll make it better. A novel's a much more intimate experience. Yeah. Something that's... Um, it, a novel's far more exposing as well. So there, there's that you know, anticipation that goes with it and, and on, I guess, level of anxiety when you're writing it. But um, it's just a much more intimate experience and something while you're in it and while I'm doing it, I feel very comfortable with myself. So, um, yeah, I, I, I really do enjoy – I enjoy both, but I, I certainly enjoy, you know, writing a novel. I, that's probably where I'm um, most adept at and, and where I'm most comfortable. So I certainly hope we don't have to wait six years for the next one. No, uh, no. <laughs> um, uh, listen, if you know listeners are thinking about whether to buy this book, absolutely get it. It is it's very powerful. It is beautifully written, and um, I have no doubt you'll enjoy it. So thank you so much for your time today, Matt. It's a pleasure, Valerie. Lovely talking to you. So there we have it, Matt. What do you think? I think that sounds great. And, uh, you know, it's just it's quite timely because I have to nominate a new book for the Pink Fibro Online Book Club. Yes. And I'm thinking that maybe I will say Valerie Koo recommended that we read this one. It's a multi-layered book. Do you know what happens, though, if, if, I, if you recommend the book? Do you know what happens? They will hate me if they don't like no, it. No, you, you have to write the post that goes up on the day of discussion. Oh, okay. So if I agree to take your book, you have to write the post. Yeah, I can do that. Oh, great. Good. Yeah, yeah. I like that. All right, okay, cool. cool. All right, let's do that then. All right. I hope you enjoyed Matt Nable, and I think that um, what's I fascinating, did. yeah, what's fascinating is it's, it's just, I mean, you, you can be 
in a Hollywood movie, <laughs> one minute. I know, what a life. And, you know, in your home in Sydney, tapping away and writing See, look, you know what? I could have done both. Remember how I wanted to be an actor? And ah. I, look at that. I've missed my moment here. It's I never too late. Both. It's never too late. You could be in season four of Arrow. I wonder if Matt would have me. Yeah, yeah, hmm. ask. Yeah. You could only hope. Yeah. Okay. Um, all right. So let's move on to our uh, app pick for the week. And what our got app for me? pick for the week is Text Expander. Okay. I love Text Expander. Now, Text Expander is only for Mac, but there's an equivalent for PC, which is called Active Words. And when I use my PC computer, I use Active Words. Um, but Text Expander is just this awesome tool that, um, you know, you know how sometimes you have to write your address or mm. even your your email address or certain paragraphs that you just use again and again for whatever reason instead of typing it all out again or instead of cut and paste which is also one shortcut it literally is a keyboard shortcut that you just assign a bunch of letters to and all you do is type those letters and bloop several paragraphs can appear oh i love it magic i use it like 20 times a day do you yeah Okay. Especially for my email address. Use it all the time. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So I highly recommend Text Expander or all right. Active. Words. Thank you for that. Yes. And our working writers tip. Well, this is an interesting one because um, we received this via email and thanks very much to Kristen for sending it to us because I think it's a very important issue that does need to be discussed. So in the email that Kristen sent me, she um, forwarded an email from a publisher she had sent a query to um, the night before and the publisher had responded. And then she goes on to say, this, and this is Kristen's quote, at first I thought it looked quite legit. The comments looked, um, sounded like they were, although I didn't necessarily agree with all of it. So what had happened was that the publisher had responded to Kristen's email and had suggested a whole range of edits that needed to be done and then had recommended an editor that they suggested should do the work. Um, my spider senses tingled, though, when I looked at the professional editing recommendation at the end of the letter. So she's clicked through to the link and um, and she was worried by what she saw there because this particular professional editor, um, the site, was riddled with typos and it didn't look very professional. And so she was basically querying whether or not this publisher was legit based on the email that she'd received. So I did two things very quickly. One was that I went to the Predators and Editors website, which is a fantastic resource for editors. And I simply looked up the name of the publisher that she had forwarded to me. And it's quite simply listed there. They list basically, they pretty much any, any um, publisher that is on the internet is on this website. All it says in red letters right next to it is not recommended. Wow which is enough for me. Um, And then there's another website which you can also look at, which is a really great website to check out, which is is called Writer Beware. Um, And it's part of the SFWA site, which is the Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers of America. And basically it's a team of volunteers and they go, again, they they will follow up queries like this. If you sent it to them, they would have a look at it. They are very, very anti-vanity publishers. They have warnings about small presses, um, agents, like they have a thumbs down publishers list. If if the publisher that you're querying or who's contacted you is on that list, stay away from them. Mm. Um, So those 
those two resources that I think are really important for authors to know about. Like if you're thinking about querying a publisher, particularly some like a small press or someone outside of the main, you know, the big five or whatever, mm. then have a look at these websites before you do it. And if a publisher asks you or an agent asks you for money mm. up front for you to pay them mm. anything for editing, for anything, then walk away from it. Warning bells. Warning <clears throat> bells. Absolutely. They're very, very loud warning bells. Yeah, it's, so, and it's astounding because so many people say, oh, but I went to a publisher and they asked me to pay for this editor. And it's like, no, yeah. the publisher gets their money, but when they decide to invest in you, yeah. they they will get their money from the royalties and yeah. out of those royalties is where their expenses come in. That's right. And I mean, you won't necessarily always, like a publisher is not always necessarily going to offer you an advance. A lot of the digital first mm. um, publishers legitimate publishers will not offer you an advance, um, but they will not ask you to pay for anything. Yep. And I think that that's a really important difference that you need to, to bear in mind. So thank you very much for bringing that to our attention and giving us that topic to talk about, Kristen. That was great. And we'll put those links in the show notes. Yeah. So this brings us almost to the end of our podcast. What are you doing until next week? Oh, you know, burying myself in edits. In because, redrafts. Oh, I've got to get it done. I need to get it done. I need to get it, you know, off my desk and on my agent's desk in the hopes that something might happen with it. Mm. And you? Um, at the moment, I'm house hunting. Mm. And it's kind of fun but kind of tiring. Mm. And, of course, I do fantasise about having my little, you know, writer's retreat or a little <sighs> office that I can look out at a lovely view and write the great, you know, <laughs> the next great book or something like that. So not all of the houses that I'm seeing have such a thing. Mm. Um, yesterday I went into a house – oh, no, it was the day before yesterday. I went into a house for an open for inspection and I – walked up the stairs and it wasn't that great a place but I walked up the stairs and I came face to face with a life-size cutout of John Bon Jovi. <laughs> so that's a, to me that's a sign it's Valerie. A sign. It's a sign. Are you, when are you moving in? <laughs> <laughs> but of course you come across all sorts of things when you uh, you know inspecting houses so it's been mm-hmm. quite amusing anyway and yes, hopefully sure I find that that place that I have my little writer's retreat with a little view. But that's you what don't I'm need t- a view to write, Valerie. We've discussed oh, this in the yeah. past. Yes, true, true, true. You What's know out what the window is not going to change. What happens on the page? Got it, got it, mm. got it. But in the meantime, one of the things that we're starting next week is a weekly giveaway uh, with the Australian Writers' Centre. So we do have um, giveaways, but they have been limited only to people who uh, receive our newsletter. So oh. we're now putting this on our blog as well so that other mm. people can see all the amazing books that we give away every week. So if you want to have a look, make sure you um, go to writerscentre.com.au slash blog. But also if you want to make sure it just lands in your inbox and that you can enter, uh, sign up to the newsletter because if you do, you can also go into the running uh, to win a $200 Booktopia voucher. Who wouldn't want that, right? I would want that, but unfortunately I am not eligible. (laughs) Which is a shame. Which is a shame. But, but, you know, both of us have the uh, Sydney Writers' Festival coming up as well. We do. And we're excited. Yes. Yes. We will report back on that. My workshop is sold out. I know. That's so exciting. 
So exciting. I'm a bit excited. Thank you to everyone who's left us uh, reviews and ratings on iTunes. We really appreciate it. If you do have 30 seconds, 30 seconds to leave us a review or a rating, we'd be so grateful. So, um, you know, we do read all of them and uh, we really appreciate it. So um, for those of you who want to connect with us on social media, please do. I'm at Valerie Koo and Alison is... At Al Tate. We'd love to see you on Twitter, but also you can email us any questions you'd like us to answer on the podcast, podcast at writerscentre.com.au. So until next time, we'll chat to you then. Bye.